Good morning. Welcome to the Pastor's Bible Class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. This morning I'm leading this class from my office in my home. Um, I'm not surrounded by the saints that I'm accustomed to seeing, but I know that we gather together around God's Word today, and I pray that your faith might be strengthened as we do so. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, during these difficult and challenging days of a worldwide pandemic, we've never experienced anything like this before. But gracious God, remind us that you are Lord of all, that we can come to you in our times of uncertainty and fear. We can cast our burdens upon you, knowing that you care so much about us. We pray today for all of the leaders of our nation and the nations of the world that you would grant them wisdom to do what needs to be done in order to spare lives, to supply the needs of so many people who are depending upon their leadership. We pray for people, all kinds of people, that, that we might find ways to care for one another in these times. We pray for those who are ill. Gracious God, watch over them. Keep them safe. Supply the gift of healing which you alone are able to give. And of course we pray for our medical community. All the doctors and nurses and EMTs and staff people who are risking their own lives, putting themselves in harm's way in order to heal those who need their help and ministry. We pray for the essential workers out there on the front line supplying groceries and all the, the supplies that we need as we self-quarantine. But especially during these times, we pray for your church. Help us to remember that it is your church. And though we are scattered in many different places around our community today, we are together, together in our common confession, con together in our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we pray today that you would be with us as we gather around your word. May we read it, mark it, learn it, inwardly digest it. May your Holy Spirit be at work within our hearts and minds to strengthen our faith, to draw us ever closer to you, for that is truly what we need in these difficult days. We pray these and all things in the mighty name of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Amen. The lessons that we're going to be looking at today are the lessons for Palm Sunday, also known as Passion Sunday, as we prepare our hearts uh, for this important day in our, our lives and in the lives of the church. Today, our first lesson comes from Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. It's another of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And I'll give you just a second to look that up. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. We looked at two of the servant songs during the Epiphany season. We looked at Isaiah 42, as God spoke to people who were broken, people who were afraid, people who were exiled and isolated from one another and all that they loved. The Lord declared, Behold, my servant whom I uphold. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. We also looked at Isaiah 49. God declared, I will make you as light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
There are four of these servant songs in the book of the prophet Isaiah, and the question that scholars have always sought to address is, who is the servant? Some have said it's Cyrus, the Persian king, and if you look at Isaiah chapter 45, it does mention Cyrus by name, but it also says that Cyrus didn't know the Lord. Yet he delivered God's people from the Babylonian captivity, and so there are those who feel that Cyrus must be the servant. Others have said, no, it's a prophet, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, that God had raised up to speak to his people in these difficult times. Others have said it's the nation of Israel. Yes, God had raised up Israel, but no, Israel had failed time and time again. It couldn't be Cyrus. It couldn't be a prophet. It couldn't be just the nation of Israel. God had so much more in mind for his people. And so the expectations began to rise that God would raise up a Messiah, the Anointed One, the true Israel, who would fulfill God's will for all mankind. Martin Luther settled the matter for us when he said, from here to the end of Isaiah, there is nothing but Christ. As we read these servant songs, each one adds to our information about the servant, as does this one. And so we look at Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9, beginning in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. It begins, the Lord God. In Hebrew, it's Adonai Yahweh. It's the double divine name. This name is mentioned four times in this passage in verses 4 through 9. It kind of forms a, a nice structure for us to take this passage apart. The Lord God has given me in chapter 4. He has opened my ears in chapter 5. He helps me. He helps me. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. This servant is, first of all, a disciple. He has listened to the word of God. He has learned from the Lord God. And so this servant is a teacher. All teachers speak what they've learned. It's not something that they make up completely on their own, but they glean what they have learned from, from their mentors, from their teachers, and they pass it on to another generation. This servant is a prophet. He faithfully speaks the word which the Lord has given me. It's a word which sustains, a word that sustains those who are weary. This servant has a mission to speak an encouraging word, to offer hope and strength to weary people. What a timely passage for preachers today. We have the very same responsibility. We study God's word, we learn from God's word, we speak God's word, and it's a word which offers encouragement to God's people. Never is it needed more than it is even in our times today. Morning by morning, he awakens me, the text says. It's an ongoing process, a lifelong learning process. And what a timely word that is for all Christians to hear 
that we also need to study God's Word day by day, to learn, to listen, to grow in our faith in God's Word. Verses 5 and 6, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. This servant obeys. Unlike other servants who have rebelled against God from, from Moses, who disobeyed the Lord's command and struck the rock, Gideon, who was afraid to go into warfare with a, a limited army chosen by God, Jonah, the reluctant missionary who refused to go to Nineveh as God has commanded him, and even after he was swallowed by a whale and set free, and even as he spoke the word in, in, in gracious terms and people heard and, and responded, Jonah refused to accept that God could do such mighty things. People of Israel had disobeyed God time and time again. The Old Testament is a history of God's God's blessing his people and they disobeying and God forgiving and God restoring like us we've disobeyed time and time and time again but this servant obeys even though the word which is given to him is challenging and threatening isn't it ironic that the word which is given to encourage others can be painful and dangerous for a servant to share? But this servant expresses his willingness to experience rejection, to endure the persecution that lay before him. And so he says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The servant is willing to suffer. He would be mocked. He would be beaten. He would be humiliated. There's this interesting passage about those who pull out the beard. This was a, a, a big deal in, in Middle Eastern culture, a great humiliation. In 2 Samuel 10 verse 4, we read about how David sent ambassadors to Ammon, but Ammon refused to receive them and those messengers, those ambassadors were humiliated by shaving off half their beard. This was a terrible disgrace. A face full of spit is a disgusting act in nearly every culture. But this servant willingly accepts the humiliation. In obedience to God's word, he recognizes that this is part of God's plan. And so he willingly accepts it. In verses 7 through 9, the passage continues, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The servant expresses complete confidence in God's help. And so he is determined that he is going to complete his mission. He sets his face like a flint with rock-solid confidence. God will vindicate him. 
And so in what sounds like a, a, a trial, a courtroom scene, he raised three rhetorical questions. Who will contend with me? Who are my adversaries? Who will declare me guilty? His words sound a great deal like the words of St. Paul in Romans chapter 8. Paul raised the same kind of questions. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And we might insert there, how about a pandemic? Will it separate us from the love of Christ? Paul is absolutely confident. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This servant is in complete control of the situation. This servant is challenging them, taunting his enemies, defying them, not not in an arrogant kind of way, but in complete confidence that the Lord will be with him and give him the ultimate victory. And so he says, Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Those adversaries, those who seek to stand against the Lord and against his anointed one, will wear out like a moth-eaten garment. They will ultimately have no clear case against him. They cannot possibly defeat him. The servant will be vindicated. Now, understand this passage in the imagery of Palm Sunday. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, knowing all the opposition that was lining up against him, the suffering, the humiliation that was before him, he was undeterred in carrying out his mission to redeem mankind. He was challenging, he was taunting his enemies, confident that he would win his victory. We turn our attention to the epistle from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Certainly a familiar text. Uh, We've used it in the past few weeks in our study of the Apostles' Creed. We talked about our Savior's state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. But let's put the Philippians passage into its context. St. Paul was in prison probably in Ephesus, around 54-55 A.D. He had been pastor and founding pastor of the church in Philippi, and now he was writing to these people that he loved and cared for a great deal, encouraging them in their faith. He was in prison, but his imprisonment had served to spread the gospel as he continued to preach everywhere he went. He had touched the hearts and lives of the guards 
And so he thanked the, his fellow Christians back in Philippi for their partnership in the gospel. He encouraged them to rejoice, to rejoice always. And he celebrated their progress and their joy in the faith. But there were conflicts. There were those from the outside who were attacking and trying to undo the ministry that Paul had, had established. There were also problems from within. In chapter 1, we read about those. In verses 15 through 17, he writes, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Preaching Christ from envy and rivalry and selfish ambition? As chapter 2 begins, Paul picks up those same themes. He's, he asks the Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As we think about the conflicts in our own lives, all the difficulties we have with those around us, how many of them are caused by selfish ambition, by vain conceit, by looking out for your own interests and not for the interests of others. That's what was happening at the church at Philippi. That's what happens in our churches today. That's what happens in all of our relationships with people in our, in our daily lives as we go about our business, as we go about our, our daily lives. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, looking only to our own interests but not to the interests of others. There is the, the source of much of the conflict that we deal with. Some scholars believe that verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2 is an ancient Christian hymn. Not sure whether that's true or not. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence for it, but it may have been. Imagine singing this over and over again. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Instead of the selfish ambition, the vain conceit, looking for your own interests. Have this mindset, this attitude, this understanding, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He served undeserving people. He sacrificed himself a great personal cost. He suffered and died on a cross. There is an example for us in all of our relationships with people. Though he was in the form of God, here is his evidence of the pre-existent Christ. Before Christmas, before he was born in that lowly manger, Jesus always was 
John chapter 1, the beautiful prologue, reminds us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is the miracle of incarnation. It was the gospel for Christmas morning. Jesus always has been. He was in the form of God. He was God. But he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it for his own personal benefit. He didn't claim his rights but he was willing to sacrifice himself for the salvation of mankind. And so he emptied himself. To empty means to leave a thing harmless or powerless. If we have a pitcher full of water, we pour out all the contacts until the pitcher contains nothing. There is nothing there at all. It's harmless, it's powerless, it's empty. Jesus emptied himself of all of that glory and became a, a human being, fully human. And yet he still had divine power. We see glimpses of that power as he performed miracles, as he fed the thousands and healed the sick and raised the dead. This is a unique comment because we know that Jesus was fully human and yet we're reminded that he was fully divine. So, God took the form of a servant, voluntarily took on this essential nature. He was in the form of God, but he took the form of a servant, and not just a servant, a slave. He became the lowest of the low. He was born in the likeness of man or humankind. He was born looking like an ordinary baby. During his earthly life, he had no halo, he didn't glow in the dark. He didn't just levitate and move from place to place. He looked like everyone else. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He brought himself low. He reduced himself to lowly circumstances. He took a lower place than he could rightly have occupied. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus went to his death willingly, in obedience to God, his heavenly Father. He, he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. There's the stumbling block, that God would come in human form, that God would take upon himself the sin of the world to redeem us from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There is no other religion. There is no other philosophy on earth quite like Christianity. In all of the other religions and philosophies of man, you must do something. You must be something. You must accomplish something in order to appease an angry God. But Jesus willingly became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. He died in our place. 
We need do nothing, for Jesus has done it all. The Creed talks about our Savior's state of humiliation, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the, Holy, of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. But then comes the state of exaltation. Verses 9 through 11 remind us, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father highly exalted him, lifted him up, raised him up to that position of, of honor and glory. Greek word here is really a combination of, of two words, hyper and hupso, to high and exalt. It takes two English words to, to translate this one. Jesus was highly exalted. The Savior's state of humiliation in the Creed talks about his descent into hell. Not to suffer. The suffering ended at the cross. The deed was accomplished when Jesus cried out, It's finished. He went to hell in order to proclaim his victory over Satan, his victory over death in the grave. The state of exaltation continues with his resurrection. The highlight of, of our understanding of, of all of life is that our Jesus has conquered death in the grave and has promised eternal life to all of us who live and believe in him. The exaltation continues with his ascension. He returned to heaven, to the Father's right hand, where he rules over all things for the sake of his church. And it includes his second coming, when he comes as judge, judge of all people. And the world, this world, comes to an end as he establishes the new heaven and the new earth. The Father has bestowed on him that name which is above every name. In that culture and even today, a person's name was the person's identity. The person's name and, and his story are always connected. It's part of his essential character. We talk about a person's reputation. Well, here is Jesus' reputation. A name that is above every name. Jesus Christ is Lord. We recall the words of Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23. The Lord says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. As Paul writes these words, he's placing Jesus on a plane equal with the Lord God. Jesus is God. And at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess their allegiance. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, a sign of homage, submission to a higher power. The world, all will acknowledge the divinity of Jesus in heaven and on earth and those under the earth. 
the angels, and all those who have gone before us will sing his praises in heaven. People, all of creation, all living things on this earth, those who believe, those who do not believe, will one day confess and bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those under the earth, refers to those who have died and been buried, they too will rise and bow their knees and confess Jesus is Lord. Yes, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. In the Old Testament, God's name was Yahweh. Jews inserted the, the word Adonai, which means the Lord. When the Old Testament was translated in the Greek language, they used Kyrios, Lord. And so to say Jesus is Lord is to say Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. And that was a dangerous thing to do in those days. In times of persecution, people were expected to say Caesar is Lord. And so to confess Jesus Christ is Lord required faith and courage. And remember St. Paul was writing these words from a Roman prison. Every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Confessing Jesus gives honor to the Father. Jesus is the manifestation of God in the world forever. Beautiful passage as we think about the kind of king that Jesus will be as he rides into uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the people are declaring him to be their king. They had no idea what they were confessing. They had no idea as they waved their palm branches and laid their robes in the, in the street that yes, indeed, Jesus was king. That one day every knee would bow, every tongue confess. Jesus wasn't the kind of king that they were anticipating, but he came to bring them so, so much more. So now we turn our attention to the Gospel. For Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, we could read the entire Passion story, but part of the tradition of the church is that there is a procession of palms at the beginning of the service, and we read from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 9 of the triumphal entry. This is one of the few events that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. John's account of Palm Sunday is somewhat unique when you compare it with the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so today, like an instant replay, we're going to look at the triumphant entry from several different angles to get a complete picture of what's going on there. In John's Gospel, as always, we need to look at it in its context. And in the verses that come just before our lesson, in John 12, verses 9 through 11, it says, Now the large crowd of Jewish people from Jerusalem learned that Jesus was there. And so they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to kill Lazarus, too. For on account of him, many of the Jewish people from Jerusalem were going away and believing in Jesus. In John's Gospel, the raising of Lazarus set the stage for what's about to come. There had been a large crowd of people who had witnessed to the miracle. They had come to believe in Jesus. But others in that crowd who witnessed the raising of Lazarus reacted negatively. 
They went back to Jerusalem and reported it to the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin met and concluded that Jesus must die for the good of the nation. Meanwhile, they're also saying now Lazarus must die for the sake of the nation. Meanwhile, all the witnesses who were coming to faith returned to Jerusalem, and they began to tell the story over and over again, and messianic hopes began to rise, especially as the Passover approached. During Passover, the population of Jerusalem would grow from the 30,000 people or so who normally lived there to maybe 180,000, maybe as many as a half a million people who came to Jerusalem for the festival and camped out all around the city. The excitement surged as they learned that Jesus was in Bethany, that he had recently raised Lazarus from the dead, and word began to spread that Jesus was on his way to the holy city. And so a large crowd set out from Bethany, a, a short distance, less than two miles, to meet Jesus. And so it was natural the chief priests determined that Lazarus must die. The, his victory o- over death um, set all of these expectations in order. They were losing their following. The miracle of the raising of Lazarus dominates this entire story. The victory over death and the grave, setting the stage for Easter. And so we begin looking at John 12, verses 12 through 16. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, that he had done them. And so the crowd went out to meet him. They took branches of palm trees. This was a a patriotic show. Patterned after other events in Israel's history, Flavius Josephus, for example, records that when Simon Maccabee returned to Jerusalem, also his brother Judas Maccabee, they came back to Jerusalem in triumph after leading rebellions against Rome. And they were greeted with thanksgiving and branches of palm trees, and with harps and cymbals and hymns and songs, because there was destroyed a great enemy of Israel. And so they waved the palm branches, a sign of national victory and pride, like waving American flags in the air today. They shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They welcomed Jesus as their champion, their hero, their king. The words which the people cry out come from Psalm 118. You may remember some of the words of Psalm 118. It begins, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 5 says, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
Shifting down to verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Verse 22 and following, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Psalm 18 is a messianic psalm. It's one of the Hallel songs. This, this group or collection of psalms, including Psalm 113 through 118, are songs of ascent. The Israelites would sing them as they ascended to Jerusalem to worship during the feasts, including Passover every year. But that year, as they greeted Jesus, these words took on very special significance. I mean, wouldn't the raising of Lazarus take on special meaning as they sang, I will not fear what can man do to me, I shall not die, save now, I pray, O Lord. Of course they would have been thinking about the raising of Lazarus and, and how this psalm now applied to the one who was riding the lowly donkey before them. They shouted, Hosanna, which means save now. Their words are more true than they ever realized. They were welcoming Jesus as a political deliverer, a king to overthrow Rome, but he had come to save them. So John says Jesus found a young donkey. John didn't record the process by which the donkey and her colt were found. Was it meticulously planned and executed? Matthew, Mark, and Luke would indicate that Jesus sent two disciples ahead of him, and they were to find this donkey and the colt and when the owner would come out and ask what they were doing, they should simply say, the Lord has need of them, and the owner would give it to them. John would seem to indicate that it was spontaneous. It was just there. Jesus found it and used it. The point is, it's the fulfillment of Scripture. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Donkey was commonly associated with the common people, the laborers, people who, who came in peace. A horse, on the other hand, would be a, 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 a weapon, a uh, used in warfare. And so, obviously, this king was a different kind of king than they were accustomed to. He was not coming claiming a great victory uh, over the enemy, uh, at least not uh, an earthly enemy. He was coming with peace for his people. John makes this understatement. He said the disciples didn't understand. Well, no one really understood what was going on. They really didn't understand. And of course, naturally, the disciples didn't understand. You have to wonder, what, what were they thinking? What were they doing as they watched this happening? They were part of the parade. They were eager for our Lord to establish his kingdom. 
They were fully aware of the opposition to Jesus. He had warned them many times that they were going to Jerusalem. There was going to be a showdown. He was going to be arrested and mistreated and humiliated and crucified. They were fully aware of the dangers of what was happening. What a shock it must have been for them to see this crowd gathering, welcoming Jesus and welcoming them. They must have been thinking, now, the kingdom is finally here. It's going to happen. How deceiving appearances can be. Well, there were more mixed reactions we read on in verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see, we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus' bold entrance into Jerusalem gets the attention of everyone. Those who witnessed the raising of Lazarus told their story over and over again, like saying, we saw it. We were with him in Bethany. Here he is, Jesus, introducing them to everyone who was standing around them. The pilgrims had heard about the miracle, and these messianic expectations began to rise. Had he come to be the Savior The Pharisees were monitoring the situation carefully. They called together the meeting of the Sanhedrin, who began to think that their cause was lost. They're gaining nothing. People were were leaving Jewish faith to, to follow Jesus, no longer under their influence. And so they're forced to take desperate measures. Certainly the Romans were watching this. With all of these people in Jerusalem, it was a dangerous time. They were badly outnumbered. They would act very quickly to put down any rebellion. And, of course, the disciples again were waiting. Waiting for Jesus to make his move. Waiting for Jesus to establish his kingdom. We wonder, is that what motivated Judas? That he grew impatient? That things weren't happening as quickly as he wanted? And so... He decided to betray Jesus in order to set the stage, to force Jesus' hand. Don't know for sure. Well, on Palm Sunday, Jesus made a clear, emphatic claim that he is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 50, the, the suffering servant song, We recognize that Jesus was in complete control of this situation. He was challenging. He was taunting his enemies, not not in an arrogant kind of way, but the time had arrived. He was confident of what he was doing. He was going to fulfill his mission. He was going to go to the cross and suffer and die and rescue his people. It's also the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Words about the Prince of Peace. He came not as a conquering king to lead Israel against the Romans. He had come to establish his kingdom, a kingdom of peace for all people. Because no one really understood 
the re- this reception that they were giving Jesus is in reality a, a rejection of his ministry, a rejection of his kingdom. Jesus hadn't come to fulfill their expectations. And so by week's end, they would turn against him and reject him as their king. They would choke on the words as they cried out, We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. As we continue to read the the Passion account throughout the week that lies before us, we hear of our Lord's arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. The word king keeps coming back again and again and again. It'll be evident that Jesus has come to be king, but not the people's kind of king. He came to offer mankind so much more. As we read the Passion account, remember Lazarus. He had died, but now by the power of Jesus, he lived. As Jesus rode that day, as Jesus went through the humiliation, the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion, he taunted his enemy. He taunted death to do its worst. For he was confident of his Easter victory. He knew he would rise again. He would live. He would win the ultimate victory. He would indeed save his people. And so as John tells the story of Palm Sunday, he's telling us, folks, it's on. The victory is is coming. Look ahead to Easter and the joy that awaits us all. Well, I pray this Bible class has been a blessing to you. Would you join me in a closing prayer? Gracious God and Father, as we approach this Passion Week, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to see our Savior in his state of humiliation as he takes upon himself our sin, as he suffers, as he dies in our place. Help us also to look forward with joy and anticipation to Easter morning and to the joy that awaits us as we see our King risen from the dead, triumphant over all of his enemies, over sin and death and the grave, with a promise of life, life now, life forever, abundant life for all of us who live and believe in him. Keep us steadfast in this faith now and forevermore. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our only Savior. Amen.